Hello and welcome to Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. I'm your host, Pam Durant. Today on the podcast, I'm interviewing Sophie Smith. She is the founder and CEO of NABTA Health, a hybrid healthcare platform for women providing personalized healthcare to all women in emerging markets. Prior to founding NAPTA, Sophie worked for Accenture as a technology consultant, and then she founded several impact enterprises, including MyZindagi, a doctor-finding platform based in Pakistan, and Le Plastics, a plastic recycling company based in Sierra Leone. Her lifetime ambition is to make healthcare affordable and accessible for all women, which is something about her that I really admire and something that I can say since meeting her a few years ago that she has been working toward and she has been doing, and it's it's just amazing. She also read history at the University of Cambridge, and she completed an MBA with Quantic School of Business and Technology. And I'm really excited to have her with us on the podcast today. She's another one of, of those um, people that when I said to myself, I want to do a podcast And she was also high up on the list to interview. While her focus is on women's health, there's a lot more to women's health that relates to diabetes and insulin resistance than you think. So this episode is good for all women and also probably wouldn't hurt men to listen in as well um, because it's truly fascinating the things that Sophie shares with us and discusses about hormones and insulin resistance and so many other topics. So let's get to the show. Sophie, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the podcast. It's really so wonderful to have you. You were another one of those people that I consider to be a trailblazer and a true leader in healthcare here in the UAE and in the region, and someone that I've definitely had on the list to, to join me for a, a podcast episode. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Pam. Thanks for having me. So let's just jump right into it. How long have you been here and how did you come to the UAE? So I've been working in the UAE since 2011. At that time, I was still with Accenture and we were doing kind of knowledge transfers for the Voight system that we were implementing for an international bank. But I moved here in September 2016. And I actually moved with my husband for his job. He's a commercial litigator. Uh, I had other companies in the UK, um, and in fact, in other parts of the world. So I had set up a doctor finding appointment booking platform in Pakistan called MyZindagi. I had just set up a plastic recycling company in Sierra Leone called Le Plastics that does waste plastics to bricks, tiles and roads. And I was pregnant. And when I arrived here, I was invited based on my kind of health tech consulting background to speak at a conference in Kuwait on diabetes, as it happens. And when I was there, I uh, got chatting to the organizer and we talked almost exclusively, not about diabetes, in fact, but about the fact that I was pregnant. And about a month later, he sent me a whole load of stats on women's health in the region. And they were pretty appalling. Um yeah, 80% of breast cancers diagnosed at stage four, which oh, has a 27% five-year uh, survival rate as opposed to 99% at stage one or two. 40% of women across the region weren't attending a single antenatal appointment, etc. And he asked me, do you want to do something in women's health together? And I immediately said yes. I think I'd been 
looking for the business that I wanted to run, you know, for the next 30, 40 years. And I said, give me a, a few months to hand over my existing business interests and also to have this baby. And then we can start work on NABTA. And in fact, we started work on NABTA the day my son was due. So the 21st of March, 2017. Wow. So... That's amazing. And not surprising that you would start the day that your son was due because I've seen you come to meetings with, I think your second child shortly after just a few days after that baby was born. And it it certainly doesn't stop you. Like a lot of people take, take, you know, time off, um, which is good and, and also necessary and needed, but definitely your children come along for the ride with you. And I love that. Yeah, I think um, I think when you have a young company, it is very much like another child and is as demanding um, in many ways, more demanding. Um, and you can't you can't leave it alone. You know, we're still young enough that if I was to take if I was to take a number of weeks off, there there, there are things that wouldn't move. We've we've just brought on board a really excellent chief operations officer. Um, a medical doctor um, in the UK by the name of um, Panna Morgan, but even even with Panna, I think it'll be a it'll be a couple of years before I can I can step back, you know, and and take the amount of time that I guess kind of postpartum recovery would usually dictate. But um, I've been very lucky. I think my my three babies have all been fairly accommodating, and when they're little, you can transport them quite easily. I think the event you're referring to actually is. Um, it was a Dubai Businesswomen Council panel um, yes, that I was. sat on. Yeah, Eleanor was four days old and my mother was sat in the next door room with her, keeping an eye on her. They um, they weren't actually, they didn't want me to come in to the building with her. They said, oh, you have to wait down in reception. I said, oh, please, you know, she's really very little. And when I told them that she was four days old, they were like, oh, we thought you meant, you know, maybe she was six months old. Please bring her up, bring her up. <laughs> Yeah, they didn't realize quite how tiny she actually was. Oh, yeah, I remember that day really well. And and that was that was really amazing. And so that discussion is is that what you got got you interested in non communicable diseases? Or were you kind of looking to do something like this before? So the non-communicable diseases part, that was actually the, the cementing of our idea and I, our identity around non-communicable disease and empowering women in emerging markets to detect, diagnose and, and manage them. That's actually um, Sabah's legacy. So my original co-founder was Massad, and he stayed with the business for about 18 months until he had to step down as a co-founder for personal reasons. Um, and then for the remainder of our kind of pre-commercialization R&D phase, we brought on board a third co-founder, um, uh, Sabah, Dr. Sabah Alzabin, who acted as our chief scientific officer. And going into the pre-commercialization phase of R&D, um, research and development, we had decided to build this hybrid healthcare model focused on kind of reimagining clinical pathways to support with the detection, diagnosis and treatment of certain diseases um, and our initial focus was on polycystic ovary syndrome, which is a hormonal imbalance responsible for about 70% of female infertility. And it was when we were kind of starting to build out this pathway that Saba said, well, you know, 80% of PCOS has an underlying metabolic component. And actually, a lot of hormonal imbalances and hormone related conditions in women have a metabolic component. Why don't we focus on non-communicable disease? And we can start by looking at some of the conditions that only affect women. 
such as polycystic ovary syndrome. But we can move from there to looking at things like type 2 diabetes that affect um, the population in general, but affect women in a specific way. So that's how the kind of NCD focus came about. Amazing. And before I get into the diabetes discussion, how can you tell us more about your app and how that came about? I assume initially it was to focus on the PCOS or was it not? Yeah, so um, the app is our consumer interface. Um, I think over time, it will likely change in terms of being the primary touch point. Um, We're at a funny point now where most companies that are technology enabled have a mobile app as the main consumer interface. But I think, um, you know, the prevalence of kind of Internet of Things and Internet enabled devices is increasing and actually a lot of the the interfaces that we have with consumers like it's very kind of concentrated into mobile phones at the moment um but it will it will start to become more dispersed so if you want to if you want to book an appointment you, you you'll typically use your phone to do it um which means that you're very tied to your phone but fast forward 5 years you know you would probably book an appointment in your kitchen speaking to a a voice enabled device like alexa or in your car, speaking to another voice-enabled device in your car, you'll be able to do more things through, you know, technology that's integrated in in an invisible way into your environment as opposed to doing everything through your phone. So the NABTA app is our primary consumer touchpoint. What uh, it is there for is for women to um, define their health goal um, with support from our little AI-powered health assistant or care coordinator, Aya, and then... um, our goal as a company is to provide women with the information and the access and the tools they need to achieve their goal with a focus on non-communicable disease and helping them understand how non-communicable diseases are affecting their goal. Because NCDs are predominantly lifestyle diseases, they come up time and time again um, as sort of stumbling blocks for women in the um, pursuit of specific goals. For example, if you are trying to conceive and you have something like polycystic ovary syndrome, almost which which is also, although not yet defined as such, a non-communicable disease, you will likely find that there is a metabolic component to it. So you will either be um, overweight or insulin resistant or pre-diabetic or diabetic, and that will be the underlying factor for your polycystic ovary syndrome. And so if you help women to address that factor, you will enable them not only to reverse or manage their PCOS, but stabilize their hormone profile and ultimately and hopefully fall pregnant without further intervention. The same thing for women who are struggling to lose weight, for example, if you have an an NCD or if you are struggling to lose weight, I should say it's likely that you have some kind of non-communicable disease, some lifestyle disease that is preventing you from from doing so if you are struggling to recover postpartum then potentially again you have a a kind of key deficiency um, or hormonal imbalance that is tied to an NCD that is preventing you from recovering postpartum in a in a kind of in a in a timely or structured or you know just um, kind of healthy manner so Um, whatever area of women's health we look at, whether it's health, fertility, pregnancy, postpartum or menopause, um, NCDs crop up time and time again as these stumbling blocks. And so our app is there to help women address those in a goal-oriented context. That 
is amazing. The endocrine system never ceases to amaze me because it really affects everything in the body and things that we never even thought about that were related, like insulin resistance and other conditions. You know, we always hear about it in the context of heart disease and and neuropathy and, and several other things, but we never truly hear about how it's affecting the other parts of our body and particularly as women. Yeah, That's I agree. So we, we refer to the menstrual cycle as the as a women's fifth vital sign, which is something that it's increasingly being referred to as. Um, it's kind of a, a running joke, but if you go into the doctor, uh, go to see the doctor for anything, pretty much the first question they ask you is, when was your last period? And the reason they do that is not because they're just checking a box. Your menstrual cycle is a very, very good indicator of whether you have any underlying health issues, any NCDs. For example, if you were if you were overweight and went into the doctor's office and they asked you, you know, when was your last menstrual cycle? And you said, well, actually it's been, it's been about six months or they happen very infrequently. What you're actually telling your doctor is this, the fact of being overweight is affecting my cycle. There's a very good chance that I am, that I am either um, pre-diabetic or diabetic or that I have a, a metabolic disorder that is that is affecting my cycle if you go in and say you know what I haven't had a I don't think I've had a period for a, a couple of months now but I have been getting like intermittent bleeding what you're telling your doctor is um, there's a good chance that I have developed some sort of fibroids or polyps or cysts or something and you know structural that could be a sign of estrogen dominance but is is likely also disrupting my cycle. So your um, kind of like eye, eye roll, oh, well, it was here, or I can't remember, or whatever response to it, what's the date for the last period, or frankly, wondering why on earth the doctor's asking you that in, your, in the first place, is it's actually telling the doctor a lot about your overall health. And I think we've, um, we've ended up in a slightly funny place in society where um, a lot of women today will take hormonal forms of contraception as a way either to um, kind of mask or mitigate hormonal imbalances um, or as a first line treatment for just about everything um, endocrine related. But the problem with that is that they lose visibility of their fifth vital sign. Um, You know, for the period in our lives where we where we have a menstrual cycle, we have this window into our bodies and how they work that men just don't have. It's much harder to identify in a man whether he's pre-diabetic. With women, it's quite easy. And so um, I think, you know, for us educating women about the menstrual cycles and what menstrual health tells them about their overall health is really important. And, you know, women uh, there, there's an opportunity for a woman to to see many things about herself that she might not otherwise see by looking inwards at, at her menstrual cycle. That is truly fascinating. And it has me completely thinking differently about so many things. And, and you're right, we're, you know, in the West, we're not really told that it means anything except you follow it or don't follow it to get pregnant or not. We never were taught about it in the context of what it might be meaning for other things happening in our body. And then in some other parts of the world, people are, are still taught that it's something to be ashamed of and they don't talk about it at all. So 
that yeah, I don't know in some cultures there's it's it's easier to see that but I don't know how in the west it became like your menstrual cycle became something that was an inconvenience mm-hmm. or you know your period became something you know that you just wanted to get rid of I guess you know for a lot of women who suffer with things like endometriosis or adenomyosis where periods can be really very painful because when you shed tissue you're shedding tissue outside of or from within the walls of your uterus you know and so women with heavy periods are 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 excused for sure in terms of wanting to avoid them or um you know not not have to deal with them as frequently but uh, in terms of periods in general being an inconvenience it feels like a rhetoric that's been created by a mostly male dominated ecosystem that perceives a menstrual cycle as something inconvenient whereas you know if it, given the appropriate tools to manage a period so that uh, again a period tells you so much um you know for me i'm always someone who's suffered with um irregular cycles um and we have a theory about a about a a genetic mutation that causes a couple of other syndromes that could be linked to a genetic variant of PCOS but uh, I've always suffered with irregular cycles and so the the more regular my cycles are the more I can the more I can um, deal with and I guess sort of regulate them or, or get rid of the irregularity the happier I feel you know it's a proof it's proof that I am maintaining my body in, in a good way that I'm giving it the food that it needs, that I'm addressing the deficiencies that it has, that I'm not, you know, unwittingly consuming um, too much either refined carbohydrate or kind of pure sugar. Yeah, it's a, uh, it, it's something that that I that I celebrate, and I think in there are parts of the world where again, you know, menstrual cycles are celebrated, and some tribes in different parts of Africa, when a woman starts her period, she walks through the fields bleeding on them because it's a sign of good luck. Um, and they believe that it will yield a, a good harvest, you know, there, I, I, that, that we've ended up in this position where in many parts of the world, this sort of this vital sign of a woman is something that is, is, is to be ashamed of or, or masked or treated as an inconvenience is honestly a little bit sad. Yeah. I never, I never thought of it in that context. Uh, I didn't know that about certain tribes either. That's truly fascinating. It's cool, huh? It is very cool. And in the in the same way that I say that I think your blood sugar number, if you have diabetes, is, is like an amazing health indicator. In the same way as, as you're discuss, discussing menstruation, that's also another indicator of if you are achieving optimal health. And it can be everything down to, like you said, eating refined sugar. If you're sleeping well, if you're drinking of enough water and doing a lot of those basic things, it it really, really does make a difference. And your yeah, app does. also helps you track and look for these signs, correct? That's correct. So um, we have a logging system, an activity logging system. It's about to get a whole lot more intuitive. So by the end of the year, we'll have completed an integration with uh, an API. So that's an application programming interface called Thrive, which will allow us to sync data from over 300 wearable devices and apps. So rather than you having to kind of populate the NABTA app with um, or with with logs yourself in order to see things in the context of your cycle and your goal, you will be able just to sync whatever other devices and apps you use and it will pull that information through. Um, again, that 
all of that will be done in a very um, transparent and person-led way. So we are we're very strict about um, data privacy, about women controlling their health data, and also understanding exactly what is happening with it. Like our job as a company is to empower women to make informed decisions about their health, and that means giving them giving them the data and the tools and the ability to make these decisions, but not making them for them. Um, so you know, if women would like to sync information from their devices and from specific devices they can choose to do so but it's not something that we would do automatically and without asking them but yes the idea is to be able to um, give women a kind of coherent picture of what the decisions they make from a dietary and lifestyle perspective look like not only in the context of their goal trying to lose weight trying to fall pregnant etc in the context of their cycle um, which is there in every mode of the app, and then also in the context of any diagnosed conditions. Again, understanding that, you know, some like a decision for somebody with hypothyroidism in terms of consumption will look different to a decision for somebody with hyperprolactinemia or, again, different to somebody with type 2 diabetes, for example. Mm. Amazing. Truly Amazing. And moving on to the subject of diabetes, and when I, when I think of women's health, often, you know, typically we end up thinking of gestational diabetes, but also women are quite affected by type two diabetes. And I don't think people realize how much. I think a lot of people, when they think of type two diabetes, sometimes they think of men more than women, but women also have and struggle with managing type two diabetes. Would you care to comment on that in the context of of women's health? Yeah, so I think all of these things are very related. You know, if you get developed gestational diabetes, you increase your chances of then developing type 2 by 50%. So GD and type 2 are are closely related. You also increase your children's chance of developing type 2 diabetes later on in life. Um, Now, how much of that is nature and how much of that is nurture, i.e. if you are regularly consuming, um, you know, more refined carbohydrate when you're pregnant, you're likely to continue to do the same thing postpartum. And if you do that and then you you, and and then you feed, you know, if, if your child then does the same thing, then they are likely to continue to do the same thing throughout their life, which is a which is a nurture thing rather than a nature thing. Um, I don't know if people really know at the moment which one takes precedent. But I think uh, for us, there's a there's there's kind of a natural flow and continuity in terms of conditions that we look at. So we started with polycystic ovary syndrome because it's the leading cause of infertility in women, because it has a huge underlying metabolic component. But also women with PCOS are much more likely to be high-risk pregnancies. And that also includes more likely to develop gestational diabetes, twice as likely, in fact. So if we identify a woman with PCOS when she's trying to fall pregnant, then already we know that we will likely need to support her more during pregnancy with um, watching out for and then potentially managing GD, which means that we will then postpartum, you know, have to, again, handhold her a little bit more and helping her to understand how to avoid developing type 2. Mm. But there's a, there's a, there's a link and a, and, a, and a progression I guess, in terms of not only a woman's journey, but also the likelihood of these different NCDs cropping up at different points in her life. 
So gestational diabetes is actually the next clinical pathway that we are building, um, an activity that's being led by our chief medical officer, Dr. Fadi Mirza. Um, and so what we will attempt to do with gestational diabetes, firstly, is make sure that 100% of women complete an OGTT, probably a one hour at 24 weeks gestational between 24 and 28 weeks, and then have quite a like a systematic um, set of things to do if she fails that first one hour test. And when I say fails, I mean, shows that after one hour, her blood glucose and insulin levels have not returned to normal. So then if she if, if she didn't, let's say didn't pass the one hour OGTT, we would then recommend a three hour OGTT, which gives you a much better idea of what exactly insulin and glucose levels are doing um, uh, after consuming a, a large amount of sugar. Uh, and then if she doesn't pass the three hour OGTT, then we would enter a kind of two week period of blood glucose monitoring where we would be taking at least four blood glucose readings every day and providing her with lots of advice and support and um, you know access to nutritionists endocrinologists etc so that that during that kind of two-week period she can really understand you know what's going on with her body what are the little lifestyle changes she could make here or there you know perhaps she shouldn't she should be introducing some more intermittent fasting where she's not eating after a certain time of night or before a certain time in the morning um, and then if she um, doesn't pass 75 percent of those blood glucose readings we would refer her to a, a third party for more kind of hands-on um, even more hands-on support for the remainder of her pregnancy. So we, and again, as much as possible, this would happen at home and on her own time. So these would not be um, OGTT, so um, uh, fasting blood glucose tests where she has to go into a facility. They would be test kits that she would receive and do at home. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, for, for those listening, uh, OGTT test is the oral glucose tolerance test where those of us have, that have been pregnant before, typically we go to our doctor's office, to our OB, they give you that vile, disgusting stuff to mm. drink. And then you sit and Which you wait. It's always orange. Why is it always so orange? Uh, yeah. Why is it orange? I never thought of that. I feel like, I don't know, remember if mine was orange or pink, like pinkish orange, but, but yeah, bright. very bright color, really gross. Almost um, to make you feel like, so like you're, you're about to drink something like a Fanta but to alert you to the fact that it's a high sugar drink. <laughs> but yeah, right. That's, I, that's very interesting. So now we need to study the psychological effects of that color. <laughs> on, yeah. on really, because if you're a marginal, that's so interesting. And, and just because for anyone out there listening, if you do have a gestational diabetes diagnosis, please know that sometimes these things cannot be avoided for whatever reason, our bodies produce the amount of insulin they're going to produce. Um, but as Sophie's pointed out, there are certain things that you can do with your lifestyle um, or if you need further support from your, your doctor to, to manage it. I think, you know, depending on which doctor you go to, they may or may not give you a lot of detailed information about it. Some doctors are very, I hate to use the word complacent, but they'll just say, oh yeah, okay, you you have this, just walk more and watch what you eat. Yeah. And while, okay, that is good advice, but it's not really detailed enough to always explain everything. And then I find women that do get a, a gestational diabetes diagnosis for, especially the first time, 
you do have a high chance of having it again after the, the first time you're diagnosed, if you're pregnant again. Um, after, you know, the very first time, it's very scary. It's very frightening. If I've met women that if they've had to inject insulin, it's been terrifying for them to the point where they've hired a home health nurse to help them um, do this. And there's a lot of fear and, and confusion around it, I think. So I think the first thing I want to say is that, you know, please don't be scared. And if managed correctly, then your baby should not have any complications. Of course, if you don't manage it, then that's a different different issue. Yeah. So what's interesting actually, Pam, and you highlighted a really, a really good thing, which is that the again, I I I was catching myself um saying if you fail this test because that like pass and fail is is unhelpful language when it comes to I think anything parenthood related but it's the it's the language used by doctors today so it's the if you say you know if you if you the doctor would say you have failed an OGTT if your blood insulin and glucose levels are over a certain level but when 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 they when they record um say it's one hour when they record at the one hour point but um I think it's it's potentially quite damaging language and something that should be changed but the yeah, it's again, it's one of these things. You can develop gestational diabetes at any point in your pregnancy. They there's a an attempt to try and spot it earlier, um, so that more can be done to support women. But again, Pam, as you pointed out, for some women, no matter how he- like they women who are perfectly healthy, who have normal hormonal profiles, normal blood glucose levels, normal insulin or you know will, insulin levels pre pregnancy, will then well, they, those will start to unbalance themselves during pregnancy. And no matter how healthily you're eating or living, you can still end up with gestational diabetes that doesn't reverse um, based on the lifestyle changes that you do or do not make. And so, yeah, sometimes it does just require more, I guess, stricter handholding. Interestingly, I I have a question, Mark, myself about whether I developed it quite late on in both of my pregnancies with my boys, I definitely didn't, or I would, I don't think I developed it with my daughter, but towards both the end of both of my pregnancies with my boys, maybe around the sort of 37, 38 week mark, I would find in the evenings, particularly that I became very thirsty um, Mm. and, and then had quite a lot of amniotic fluid with both of them, actually, when, when my waters ended up breaking, which is something that by that point, you're kind of, unless there's there are concerns about growth you don't have any more scans at that stage so it's not something that they would necessarily spot and then both were very large so my my first baby was 4.2 kilograms which for a first baby is quite heavy my my second son so my third baby was five kilograms wow he was a giant and they they asked me you know did you have gestational diabetes and i said not that i'm aware of but actually i do have a little bit of a question in my head whether i might have developed it very late on and it wasn't from like there was nothing from a dietary perspective that i changed and i was i i would always actually lose weight even with the additional baby weight in the final trimester of pregnancy so i think there's these things can be difficult to catch but the most important things is for is, is for women to be aware of them, to recognize the symptoms, to understand the risks, and then and then be able to to make their decision accordingly. 
That's absolutely true. And drinking water is always one of the first signs of high blood sugar. So if you find that you are feeling really thirsty and have unquenchable thirst, please highlight that to your doctor. I mean, even for my son, when he was diagnosed with type one, because it was in the month of August, I thought, oh, it's just because we're in Dubai and it's really hot, but actually it wasn't. Um, So any type of diabetes, if you're drinking too much water and you're having to urinate more frequently, which again, when you're pregnant, you have all this pressure around your bladder and everything anyway. So it's hard to tell to be for sure. Um, but always ask your doctor about that, ask for more, um, more information about it. And you mentioned about nature versus versus nurture. And I know that there's a lot of studies, even to what's happening in the womb to children. And they're looking, I I listened to a, a presentation from a researcher from, I think it was university of Colorado at a diabetes meeting several years ago, and they were looking to study what's happening in the womb and does that affect children or children that later become adults and would they develop diabetes or not? You know, and like you said, if you do have gestational, then for some reason that child may have a higher chance of developing or does have a higher chance of developing type two later in life. But I think the thing that you highlighted that we need to be really careful of, and especially the medical community, because then it comes back to the, the, the mom blame thing again, right? Yeah, yeah. Moms are always under scrutiny, like pass or fail, or, oh, you ate this or you, you ate that. And, you know, living healthy in general is going to help all of these conditions, not, not just the diabetes. Um, so if you're pregnant, or if you're a mom, please know that in, in so many cases, there's often nothing that we can do to control our hormones. Sometimes they, they sometimes have a mind of their own. Yeah. I think also it's just, and again, in this day and age, it's very difficult, um, particularly somewhere here where, you know, people drive everywhere. Most of the kind of meetups and support networks, particularly for new mothers, are quite spread out. It's difficult to find time to exercise regularly. And you just you end up moving a lot less than you might do if you lived somewhere where with kind of continuous public transport links or where public transportation was something that everybody used, you know, where you might you'd have maybe more um more women and a kind of a bigger support network in your immediate area um as opposed to having to try you know drive 15 20 minutes to get to um wherever it was you needed to go so i think yeah it's just i mean we we we've spoken about it before and it was something that one of our advisors uh initially i i guess mentioned is that it's it's very difficult these days to be accidentally well you know um mm. people are not sick but you can become accidentally unwell um, almost through no fault of your own just because the, you know, the demands that you have on your life. And again, as a mother, in terms of carting children around and taking them to this activity and that activity and balancing that with usually quite a demanding work schedule and, you know, not necessarily having the maternity leave that you would like or, you know, all these things make it very difficult to, um, yeah to be accidentally well and so every person I would say again especially in a in a country like the UAE where you, you where you have to drive to get from place to place anybody who manages to be fit and healthy I mean hats off to you like you've worked hard at that that has not happened without effort 
No, that's really yeah. true. When I think of like this last summer, we worked from Turkey. I didn't ne- necessarily have my regular workout routine, but I actually pretty much maintained my weight, but it was because I was having to walk and then there's hills. It's not flat either. Right. Um, and then when I came back here and then, you know, got even more deeper into my work, even though I was, I felt like I was exercising more heavily, right. More regularly, all these things, I started to gain a couple kilos. And I think it was just because I didn't have that general, you know, kind of daily walking around to get things done in my life. And, and you're, you're so right. That can make a, make a huge difference. Yeah, I think I so I developed in, insulin resistant polycystic ovary syndrome when I when I moved here and I found out about it because I was trying to conceive baby number 2. I was using our little um vaginal fertility monitor and realized that I wasn't ovulating. So I went to see an OBGYN, got my diagnosis and then I had to have a trigger shot to conceive Eleanor. Um between Eleanor and William, who's number 3, I made a lot of I would say small but significant lifestyle changes or dietary changes. And William, I conceived naturally and also first time. Um, but there, yeah. So, I mean, again, little things, for example, and, and I would say three things. I um, now exclusively eat um, porridge and with oat milk in the morning, because for me, um, that's a low GI or glycemic index food. Um, and uh, it also, um, cow's milk can um, cause an inflammatory response in some people so mm-hmm. I find that I don't cut it out of my diet completely but I do limit my consumption of it and that has helped so I eat porridge with oat milk um, I then um, I used to eat a lot of wraps wraps are one of these things that are sold as a, like a healthy alternative um, to a sandwich but actually wraps are full of refined carbohydrate and very calorific um, unle- even if you even if you get a wholemeal um, wrap, it's quite densely packed. You know, you'd be much better off having a sandwich. So I cut wraps out of my diet, and I also started eating dinner with the children at five o'clock, and then basically didn't eat anything after that. And it's different for everybody, but for me, those three things have allowed me to manage my blood glucose levels much better over the day, introducing what is effectively a kind of a period of intermittent fasting um, of about 12, you know, 14 hours helped a lot. Um, but, you know, every every person's different. And um, there's a very interesting study being done in the UK at the moment that is looking at people's um, metabolic response to um, different foodstuffs that they consume. And it starts, you, you, you are admitted to a facility for two Um, I think for an initial two week period, you get fed like very um, kind of nutritionally, uh, I guess, defined muffins um, or like little kind of food packs three times a day. Your blood glucose levels are monitored continuously. And then after two weeks, you get sent home with a continuous blood glucose monitor and just have to kind of record what you're eating, I think, for a further four to six weeks. And the one thing that they have realized is that every person responds to stuff that they give them in completely different ways. So for some people, you know, you give them peanut butter and they'll have a massive um, GI spike. Other people, you give them peanut butter and nothing. Um, so working out what what is best for your body um, from a dietary and lifestyle perspective is really important. But 
those were three things that um, that work for me. Thank you for sharing that. I love that because at Diapoint, we always say no two people with diabetes are alike. And it's absolutely true that what works well for one person does not work for another. However, having said that, we could all eat probably a little more healthily. And I find because my son is on a continuous glucose monitor being type one, when I feed him a more plant-based diet, his blood sugar is beautiful. He's a teenager now. And so hormones have a lot to do with different blood sugars. And we had a few days where it was just being really stubborn. And I said, okay, we're going to go full on plant-based for his lunch and at school and different things for a few days. And and at home, I'm typically cooking more plant-based. And then blood sugars went back to being really nice and in range. And then last night he ate something that was not plant-based. And then there comes the insulin resistance. And also I find And a lot of other people with diabetes or parents with children with diabetes will observe this in their children and eating a really um, heavy dinner that has a lot of protein and fat because your body has to break all of that down before it can digest the carbohydrates. Eating something like that at night is really hard on your body and that can create a lot of insulin resistance. So eating it earlier and then maybe going for a walk after or having whatever that heavier meal might be in the middle of the day can do a lot for, for a lot of different people. So it's all these little lifestyle changes. Um, sleep can also affect blood sugar. Actually, if you're listening and this is released in November, um, you should join the um, diapoint challenge that we have going on in November because it's all these small lifestyle changes and things that you can make that you will see your outcomes improve, no matter what the condition is that you're managing. These are all basic things that all of us can do to um, make our bodies a little more healthy as well as mental health as well. Um, even the the smallest change can can make a really big difference. So thank I you for highlighting that. Um, I, I particularly think um, with children, you know, we don't have any refined carbohydrates in our house. So no white pasta, no white flour, no white bread, nothing white. Um, and so even if we make something like cookies for the children, usually they have them. So they, they might have them with coconut oil. They'd have them with um, wholemeal flour and things that are less likely to create a a kind of a, a blood glucose level spike. And it's really interesting to observe what happens now with if they go to a party, for example, and they have something with refined carbohydrates. Firstly, they'll often complain because they, they find them a little bit tasteless in comparison. You know, if you're used to eating kind of nutty whole meal bread and then you get a slice of white bread, there's there's a noticeable difference in taste. Um, but they often like there's almost an immediate reaction in terms of their mood and behavior um, much more I am my children become irritable and hyperactive and ratty if they eat um, if they eat things with refined carbohydrates in them because they're just not used to them um, but I think yeah. you know that that response is more stark because um, because we do try to manage their consumption of refined carbohydrates in the house. Yeah, we do the same. And I even find if if Aaron is out, like I, I gave this example to some people, or I even mentioned it in a video at last Halloween, 
he was out with his friend. I'm like, okay, one day a year, go for it. And he ate some of the, the candy and he gave the right amount of insulin and did really well managing his blood sugar, but he felt absolutely awful after because he's not yeah. used to having so much refined sugar. So it's a matter of training them. And, and they're surrounded by a lot of kids that aren't eating as healthily. And suddenly, I, you know, I'm kind of, one of the beautiful things that's come out of COVID is there's less outside food coming in the school because I, for a while I felt like donuts were coming in like every week. Um, and that's not the healthiest snack to have on a regular basis. So that makes such a, such a big difference. I think maybe you and I can do a separate podcast about recipes for kids and different things. Yeah. <laughs> Love to. Um, Myrna Subba is a really good person for healthy recipes for um, children on Instagram. Um, oh, I'll check her out. There, there's there's quite a few actually, um, and we're we're speaking with with some of them at Diapoint because now more and more people are realizing this. Fortunately, which I love, and more people are paying attention to to what they eat and what they pay their their uh, what they feed their children. So. Um, I'm really happy that people are paying attention to that. Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I just want to ask you a couple more questions before we go. So because you've worked in so many places um, and started businesses in other countries, what, what was it that led you to start your business here? Um, so for me, I mean, starting NAPTA here um, was initially um, a little bit accidental um but the when we decided as in it's the place that i was when we decided to um uh when we decided to to register napta though um it became a more concrete decision um to to register here as opposed to for example uh in another part of the middle east and in africa even in south asia um the uae is pretty unique in terms of um, the blend of nationalities that you get here. There are over 200 nationalities and um, they are like fairly evenly distributed. You know, if you go to the UK, you have terms like majority population and minority populations um, because there are certain ethnicities in the UK that really are a minority. Whereas here, you've got a good number of people representing each nationality. Um, and so if you um, if you want to look at the way that people from different parts of the world are affected by specific diseases, this is a good place to be. It's also uh, a part of the world where there's a high prevalence of non-communicable disease. I think most of the GCC countries have um, diabetes rates among adults of, of close to now 25 percent and more than half of all adults are overweight or obese. So again, if you um, are a company like ours that wants to build a platform capable of detecting, diagnosing and treating non-communicable diseases, this is a very good place to be. Hmm. I never thought of it in that context, but you're right. Always, the I, that's one of the things that I think all of us that live here love about being here is all the different nationalities and things that we're exposed to. But I never thought about it in the context of healthcare or in, in the context of diabetes, which is quite fascinating. Yeah, I think, I mean, the UAE is, um, it's also a, a fantastic place um, in terms of supporting startups and innovation in general. And I think increasingly, um, 
the the UAE is, uh, has aspirations to become two things: a hub for medical tourism, and also a hub for innovation in emerging markets. Uh, and so I think um, that again, for us with our kind of Middle East, Africa, South Asia focus, um, this is a very good place to be. Mm-hmm. It certainly is, and we're glad you're here. If you don't have the NAPTA app and you're a female, diabetes or not, you definitely need to check this app out. You need to download it, use it. It can probably highlight many fascinating things about your health. That even if you're very in touch with your health and you know you think you're being healthy, um, there there's always room for improvement. And and I really love this app and what you've built. And like I mentioned, I'm really appreciative that you took the time out of your morning to speak with me. The work that you're doing is, is so important and, and so fascinating. Um, but most importantly, it's, it's helping so many people and it will continue to help many, many more people in the future. I'm sure of that. So thank you for that. No, thank you for having me, Pam. It was a great pleasure. And oh, thank you thank for you. your support. <laughs> Always. I'm, I'm one of you, I'll always be one of your biggest fans. So I learned so much today. Despite being familiar with NAPTA and their work and some of the things that I've heard Sophie talk about at some of the meetings I've seen her before, I still learn so much. There's so much to know about the human body and about our own body as well as individuals. And NAPTA, I think, is a beautiful use of technology that is very cutting edge and being useful and telling us information about our bodies that we didn't know before. It's not just tracking. It's looking beyond just what's being tracked and making suggestions for things that you might look into, questions that you might ask your doctor or things that might allow you to change your lifestyle. So definitely check out the app. Um, Menstrual cycle as a fifth vital sign. I never thought of it in this context. So that truly broke down a barrier to thinking that I had today, which I really love. If you have any questions about NAPTA or aren't sure where to find it, we will put all of that in the show notes. So please have a look there to find the link to download NAPTA and their website to learn more about women's health. Today's episode is brought to you by the Diapoint November Challenge. I mentioned this during my discussion with Sophie, and it's so true. Some of the most basic things that we can do can really improve our health and also chronic conditions. This was created by Diapoint Health Coaches to create a comprehensive month-long wellness journey to help you take control and reset your health during the month of November, Diabetes Awareness Month. This challenge and the workbook that you get, it's totally free. That's right, free. It's a beautiful handbook packed with information and inspiration and all kinds of worksheets to track your health goals and progress, a weekly email to keep you motivated, virtual Q&A that we'll have throughout the month, and also a chance to win free health coaching with a Diapoint coach. So go to our website today, check the show notes for the link, visit our social media platforms and download your workbook today and participate. We look forward to seeing you at the challenge. If you've been enjoying the podcast and you don't want to miss a future episode, please go to iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts and subscribe. Leave us a comment or leave us a review. 
It helps us to keep doing what we're doing. Or share it on social media or with a friend. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your support.